Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Eric Chemi. We haven't talked enough about insurance, specifically life insurance in these recent episodes. And I read a note that life insurance for a lot of people is their second biggest asset, something we don't think about, right? But there's this huge amount of money that's waiting for you being invested. And at some point you'll either get it or your family will get it. There's a beneficiary to it, but we don't think enough about it. It has major implications for how people invest the impact of interest rates, and what decisions they're making along the way. So I'm pleased to have Jay Jackson on the show with me today. He's the CEO of Abacus Life, which is a company focused on life insurance in particular. It sells life insurance, and it's a company that's publicly traded. People can invest in the company themselves. So Jay, thank you so much for coming on. I know you've had a long career in investments and insurance on Wall Street, so you've done so many things. Just walk me through the the basic example here of maybe the the biggest misconception a normal person has about life insurance. Sure. The biggest misconception, the way people treat life insurance is that they don't treat it like an asset. And as you highlighted, I've been in a variety of different investment and investing firms. I've invested personal assets, obviously worked with uh, high net worth clients and and equities and and worked in munis. and, And this was a unique asset class. What's interesting is that I'm one of the few people that call it an asset class. Most people, when they look at their life insurance policy, they look at it like debt, meaning that they take out a life insurance policy, they're gonna pay on it every single month, but it's a benefit that they're not truly going to see themselves. And what I mean by that is that if you look at life insurance as an industry, right now, the size scale of it is just massive. Life insurance, in, in, which is owned by individuals here in the United States is a $13 trillion market. 13 trillion, that's two and a half times the US residential real estate market, but very few people pay attention to it. What's fascinating of the 13 trillion, 90% or nine out of 10 life insurance policies or 90% of that 13 trillion never pays a claim. So if you really think about it, the life insurance company is one of the greatest businesses in the world, right? Where where you collect premiums and you only have to pay out 10% of the time. And it's not because the life insurance companies have done something nefarious here. They haven't. It's what happens is, is that people treat life insurance like debt, meaning that it's an expense to their to their bottom line. So let's just take somebody who is now 75 years old after paying into their life insurance policy for 20 years. They don't look at that like a mortgage payment, which is how they should. Instead, they look at that and they say, "Okay, well, that's the insurance I never wanted or had to use. Thank God. When in reality, that has been accreting value the entire time. 
And so what do they typically do when they're 75, their kids are in their 50s um, and they say to themselves, I don't need a million dollars or two million or half a million dollars of life insurance coverage. I'm just going to stop paying on it. And when that occurs, who wins? That 90% scenario I just gave you, right? Meaning that the life insurance carrier is a big winner in that. When you fill out a life insurance document or a contract for the very first time, the very first section of that contract, do you know what it's called? No. It's called owner. So when you fill out a life insurance form, pay attention to this the next time you do it. Look at the terminology they use in that contract. A life insurance policy is just a contract. And on that contract, the first section is the owner, which is you, which means you own this contract. Not anyone else, not the carrier. You're the owner, which means as the owner of a contract, which goes all the way back to the Supreme Court in 1911. And Grigsby v. Russell was a fundamental uh, decision for life insurance. And the first part of that decision says this, life insurance is personal property. That's why you're the owner. Therefore, it can be sold and transferred to a third party. What's fascinating about that is that no one treats it that way. If they did, there is zero chance that 90% of policies would lapse without ever someone knowing the market value of their life insurance policy. You personally or any of your listeners would never, ever sell their home, right, without at least having some sort of third-party valuation done or, more importantly, understanding what the market value of that home actually is. And that is what's occurring. And it's a tragedy. Because on average, we're paying seven to eight times over what that lapse amount is. And it's just a solve for what the market value is. Okay, we so much to talk about here. Okay, this is good. This is good. So let's let's walk through it. So you're referring to it as an asset class in the same way like stocks or bonds are an asset class. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. And and then remind me, you said something like something trillion, did you say 13 trillion? What was the number you gave? 13 trillion, which is two and a half times U.S. residential real estate market. So 13 trillion is, is what number? What is that the value of? 13 trillion is the amount of life insurance policy in force, meaning that effectively in its simplest form, everyone who has a life insurance policy, they they, they take it out and they say, hey, I took out a million dollar life insurance policy. That million dollars represented, is represented as that 13 trillion. So okay. that is all of the, what we would say, exposure that the life insurance companies have if the entire population of the United States all passed away today, right? And the life insurance company had to pay their heirs, they would have to pay out $13 trillion to make that payment. Got it. That, that's what I was wondering. Like if everyone who had a life insurance passed away, 13 trillion is the payment. Or if you right. think of it as $1 million per, let's say the average person, right? Let's just sure. make up a number. There's 13 million of those out there, right? Because a trillion right. is 13 yes. million million, right? Right. Um, then, yeah, you were saying, so only 10% ever get paid out? Correct. Is that, that seems crazy because everyone dies in the end. Right, but no one no one has their life insurance policy still in force. Oh, they give it up. They stop they paying it up. They just stop paying on it. And it's because people don't treat their life insurance policy like an asset. They look at it like, oh, this is like my credit card debt. They don't understand that it accretes in value and has a market value. Uh, and if they did, 90% would never lapse. And that's our mission. That's my religion to get out there and tell people that, hey, this thing this life insurance policy that you thought was literally just to be used at some point in the future, if and when that occurred, actually has a value.
and it has a market value. Is it because the word insurance is used as opposed to something else? It's totally yeah. like, I don't need the insurance. You know, my kids are old enough now or I've made enough money. Like I don't need it. So I'm just going to, it's like car insurance or like, I right. don't, I don't have the car. I don't need, is it, is it because right. that word is getting in people's mind? I think so. I, I think that, you know, when people look at insurance, again, they look at it as something they never want to have to use. Therefore, it can't have value, right? They just look at it. This is a wrapper to an asset. What I tell people every day is, is that you're, you're right in that thinking is, is that it is a wrapper, but the asset is you. And what's, what happens is, is that as you age, think about it, it gets more and more valuable every day. So think about it now, just really quickly from the investor. Oh, you're closer side. to the payout. You're closer yeah. to death. So it's more yeah. likely to pay out sooner. It is. Well, and, it's, and it accretes in positive value. It gets more and more valuable every year you age. Right. Because if you think about it, your contract end date, if this were a mortality driven, well, if this were a zero coupon bond, as you got closer to the maturity date, it increases in value significantly. Right. The, the, the last two years of a zero typically trade at a premium or something much higher. Same thing happens here. Right. The sad the fact is and I would say it's a sad fact because most people don't take this into consideration. Eric, I have bad news for everyone. We are all going to eventually have a mortality event. It is going to happen. When it occurs is actually quite predictable as you age. Because when you get into your 70s and even your 80s, you can do a look back and re-underwrite and understand what that medical profile looks like and say, okay, I'm 80 years old. I take the entire population who have the exact same genetic profile as well as a historical medical profile. All of those distributions occur and my average lifespan at this point might be seven years, right? I look at this even further. It's not just life insurance. If you look at estate planning in general, what's mind blowing to me is how much reliability we put into target date funds without any real back, background or understanding of how we're, how we're presenting our own target to that date, right? When I acquire a life insurance policy and I give someone that data and I say, you know, your average lifespan based upon historical data, other people just like you, all the things that I just laid out, physician review is around seven years. Why are you planning to age 95? Right. It's nonsense. And and what's amazing, financial advisors do the same thing. They're just uncomfortable about having that discussion, and we all have to get. Or well, they just keep pushing it out. They just keep saying, "Okay, you're you're going to live till 100." Like everyone's living to 100, yeah. that kind I, of thing. And that's here's a here's a fun fact about living to 100. There's never been a centurion over six feet tall. I don't know how tall you are on this cast. My guess is you're probably you know who knows, but if you're I'm over exactly six, foot, six feet, but maybe five eleven if I'm shrinking a little bit. I'm yeah, in that case, when you get to ninety, you're going to be saying you're five eleven, so you can make it. But <laughs> the point is. Wait, no that, one, no one six feet tall has ever lived to hundred. No, here's really? here's the real facts. If you start really, that's really crazy. I had no idea. If you cure every disease known to humankind, everyone, heart disease, cancer, right? Let's just start with cancer. If you cure cancer, do you know how much how long lifespan is increased total for the population? How much? Three point two years. That's it. That's it. If you cure every disease known to humankind, you know how much lifespan increases. 5.6 on average. So let's start to have a real conversation about what this really means. People have this fear of running out of money, right, in their retirement, but we're not providing them any real data 
in, and I'm speaking to the general financial industry to support that says, well, this is why that fear makes sense. And instead we run from it. I do something much differently. I give them the lifespan data. And what we say is we say, okay, now that we understand what the lifespan is, let's look at what the fair market value of your life insurance policy is. Sure. In seven years, the payout to your heirs will be a million dollars. However, at age 80 today, that could be worth $300,000, not zero. Don't lapse it for nothing. And are you talking about term, whole, universal, variable? Which life insurances are you talking about? Yeah. So when you get up to past age 75, there's not much term left. No right. one issues term at age 75. Right. So we're, you know, I assume we're ignoring term. I assume it's yeah, like, let's say I have term, term right now. Yeah, that, like, exactly. It's 35 to 65 and that's it. And that's it. And then at 65, you have to make a decision. Um, you're going to have to say, OK, I, I really can't get term or if I can, it's not going to be great. It's going to be pretty right. expensive. I now want to think about having permanent life insurance to age 100 or 120 or whatever the protocol may be. Uh, and at that point, you're going to acquire either a whole life or a universal or an index universal. But universal life means something that effectively it's flexible premium. In a nutshell, here's what happens. You're going to start to overfund your premiums early. Right. So at age 60, 55, et cetera, when you take that policy out for you to have a target premium that stays consistent, ultimately to, let's say, age 100, you're going to overfund it early, meaning, you know, your cost of term insurance at age 55 is much cheaper than what it is at 75. Right. So you're going to overfund that because permanent life insurance is going to cost you more money at age 55. Overfund it, meaning you're going to build a cash value. You build that cash value so that when you get to age 75, you use the excess cash value to fund the increasing cost of insurance over time. The challenge in that math is it generally, specifically the last decade, when you look at the interest rate environment we've been in, those were underfunded. And so now at age 80, you don't have the cash built up to continue the policy at that premium level, which is why your premiums ultimately may go up. Um, and we see that occur very, very often. Um, whole life, you're self-funding. But even with whole life, what happens is, again, as people turn age 80, they see this massive cash value. They're effectively self-funding a big part of any of their maturity claim. And therefore, they're going to get a loan against it or they'll just take the cash and use that for other needs that they may have at age 80 or 85. And so, you know, the primarily, you know, we're looking at those over the age of 65, those that have universal life policies, uh, we estimate that, and it's a growing number every year, to be around $233 billion last year, $250 billion this year, $260 the next year. Because as the aging population continues to retire, just like we talk about in the baby boomer side, this market just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And the tragedy for us is, is that I think as great as we're doing is spreading this message and people are starting to get accustomed to what they hear, our entire industry only captured less than 2% of that $233 billion last year. And it's because of education, it's because of understanding and people starting to understand that, wait a minute, my life insurance has a value. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Right, right. Yeah, so so tell me then. So, Abacus, I assume you are 
you're buying these policies from people or there or there's a there's a transaction like you said yeah they're the owner let's say I, the 75 year old version of me yeah got this life insurance it's going to pay out when i die but i don't know how long i'm going to live i don't want to keep making these payments normally i would just be like i'm out just walk right. away from it but right. you're now all of a sudden there's an opportunity for hey abacus is here they'll buy Eric's life insurance. Correct. Explain what the what is the transaction now for that 75-year-old to, to get sure. them with something and not with zero. First is information and education. Um, we do run uh, television commercials. Uh, I apologize in advance. I'm on them. So if you've seen me on those, you know, I've got a blue, it's like a sweater that's a blend between uh, Ted Lasso and, and, and Mr. Rogers. Uh, but it, it, it seems to work. But one of the big things that we did is we put uh, a calculator, the same instant calculator that we were using on our customer service desk, which effectively has the ability to solve for net present value. And all we need is some basic information, the gender, the age, policy type and policy size. And with that, we instantly put out evaluation based upon what that person thinks their own health criteria is. So why do we ask about health criteria and why is that so important? Well, what we're trying to establish is that lifespan number. Some people are healthier than others. So you might have a future payment obligation of 12 years. You might have a future payment obligation of six years. Our premise is, let's show you how the calculation is actually calculated for net present value, which includes lifespan, future cost, and then investor rate of return. And we provide all of that data to the policyholders. More importantly, we traditionally work and a large part of our business set is with RIAs, financial advisors, and insurance agents. In fact, over the last, gosh, almost 20 years of our company's history, we've partnered with over 30,000 advisors um, over that time period. And 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 during that what, process- What does that mean though? I didn't mean to cut what does yeah. it mean you partner with them? So 30,000 advisors, RIAs, what does sure. a partnership look like? So this is their client. And what we tell them is, is that we want to provide you the information so you and your client can make a suitable decision whether this is the right decision for them or not. One of the things we'll tell clients frequently is, here's the math, right? If it's over the next seven years, this is your premium obligation over the next seven years, and this is the rate of return you should pay your estate. Frankly, you should keep this policy. However, your, your market value in today's numbers could be two fifty, three hundred thousand dollars $300,000 per million. Our average payout per million is around 22% historically. So it's a significant number. We also find this really useful in large family offices. We see this in business transactions frequently. They ask us for us to do the valuation of the contract because it has real net present value. How we work with financial advisors, and most importantly, this is a highly regulated transaction. We are regulated in, in every state that, that requires it, which is 42 states. We're, we're licensed in 41 of them, every state but Alaska. And there's some reasonings for that um, that has to do with their regulatory environment in general. But the point being is, is that these are state regulated documents that are used in the acquisition price. We make sure that the beneficiaries of that contract before they sell it are informed and sign off. We also get letter of competencies from the policyholders physician. So therefore, we can do a look back here and say, OK, this is a real transaction that has a real dollar value and the transaction itself is highly regulated and it puts abacus in a unique position because we're so regulated there's not very many of us and other companies in this space that can do this 
we are currently the only public, publicly traded company in our space and getting the SEC caught up to speed on how we're doing a state regulated transaction was its own um, certainly hurdle. Uh, but we're very proud that we were able to work through that process and, and, and we, we enjoy being a publicly traded company because it's brought a lot of very positive awareness uh, to our transaction. Is this, I've, I've read Viatical. Is this Viaticals? Where yeah, it's, over? so Viatical is a little bit of an older term, in the, but yeah. specifically what a Viatical is, is if someone has a lifespan of less than two years or 24 months, then I mean, some states will call that a Viatical. And what we Based recommend- what? Who knows if you have a two-year or less lifespan, unless you yeah, have some terminal disease. Generally, it's a terminal disease. Okay. However, unless you're 89, right? You're 89 years old, there's a high probability that's probably two to three years, right. right? So it's age and or some sort of terminal disease. It's not an area of practice that we focus on. We use this mainly in estate planning. The average size of the life insurance policy we acquire is 1.5 million. And, you know, the average, what we would say, lifespan is almost eight years. However, there are circumstances where you have shorter lifespans. The first thing we do is we educate those consumers and say, your policy may have a rider called an accelerated death benefit. Pursue that first, meaning go to the life insurance company and see if they'll give you up to 50% sometimes of that claim. Um, and they'll, you can use it in today's dollars because there's some people that might want to use that for um, different types of treatments that they may be seeking, um, alternative treatments. Uh, but we do work with a number of individuals that, that are you know, kind of working through different types of terminal disease and they're looking for liquidity in their policy. Oh, rather than wait till they die and get one and a half million, right. maybe you can get seven hundred fifty grand right now from the life insurance company. Directly. And yeah. yeah, and if it's two year contract, again, it comes to the math. A lot of times, you'll see those contracts transact at seventy five percent of face, right? So instead of one point five, might be one point two. So they're getting a bulk of those assets now, um, and then we have to just factor in the future premiums, et cetera. The other things that we do often in those types of cases where you have a shorter lifespan, we keep their beneficiaries on the contract for a certain percentage of that one point five million. So it might be twenty or thirty percent, however the math works, and then plus provide some sort of cash option, right? So it's a bit of a hybrid transaction where they get to maintain and stay on the policy. But in addition to that, um, they'll also receive some upfront net present value today. Okay. Okay. And then what, what, what is the, the technology behind all this? Because if you know, someone goes to the website that you mentioned technology, is there AI involved? Is it just hardcore crazy math to try to figure <laughs> out exactly how much everyone is yeah. worth and how long they're going to live? Like, what, what's the tech behind all this? Sure. It takes a long time to aggregate the data first, right? I mean, technology in itself and AI in itself doesn't function without the inputs. And we've got 20 year history of those inputs of really tracking different types of mortality experiences re related to different types of impairments, right? Related to different types of genetics and family history. We then aggregate all of that data along with utilizing third party uh, lifespan firms that have medical actuaries on staff and their own sets of data. And then additionally, that we'll, we'll, we'll seek a physician review as well. Uh, but then you now you overlay the technology on top of that. So now you can actually look at all of these circumstances. What AI means to me is really large language models, the ability to process reams and reams and reams of data in an effective, efficient way that can be recalled easily. And, and we do use that. And we use that in a sense so that we can provide information to our clients in a very timely way, to their financial advisors in a very timely way. I think what you touch on is super important. 
is that the aggregation of lifespan data over the next five years is going to fundamentally change how we do financial services. And all financial services, like even just your regular sure. stock and bond investing, all of that. Absolutely. In fact, we're looking now, we're working now, we part of our verticals is what's called ABL Wealth. And in, inside ABL Wealth, ABL is our ticker symbol. ABL Wealth Advisors is a firm that, that we have launched as a subsidiary of our Publico in the last uh, really six months is when we started the process and building out even ETF models structured around someone's lifespan. So, you know, effectively just making the target date fund scenario much more personal and much more accurate to that individual, right? You know, so many of us just pick like 2035 target date fund and have no idea yeah. why. Now we can do that with some precision, but most importantly, in a very customizable, personal way. And you start to have those conversations now with financial advisors and how they're structuring these. What you're going to find is, is that, you know, forever, if you go back in financial services, people talked about this 4% was the magic number for a SWIP. And the reason why is that they're running this out to age 95 or further. And what we say is, why are you doing a 4% SWIP on someone with a five-year lifespan? That's nonsense. Oh, then you can do 20% and you'll be fine. <laughs> like, it, it, well, it might not be quite that much, but it might be but, 12, yeah. might be 10, right. right? When you think about how annuities are issued, doing medically underwritten annuities would then give you significantly more monthly income if you had a better structure on understanding what the lifespan is. What, how do you figure out lifespan? What are the data points you're looking at sure. that, that, that help you predict a lifespan better than what had been happening before? Well, in large data matters here, right? So you're, what you're doing is you're taking an individual and you're comparing them to a distribution curve of lifespan of individuals that have very similar um, traits. And so aggregating that information is the first challenge and then being able to cross-reference it against other circumstances. But so the what are the traits? What are the factors that tend to matter the most? Obviously, we know gender, age, location, yeah. like job. When we medically underwrite someone, there's, there's, as this continues to evolve, we're going to see genetics play more and more right. significant trait, right? You, you know, there are some recognizable genes at this point. Like there's a FOXO3A if you have... They, we all have it, but if you had that genotype turned on, it, it could indicate that you have a 50% higher probability to living past age 90, right? Those things are really interesting. It doesn't mean that that is the end-all predictor of what your lifespan is. It's a combination of factors. And the biggest factors that we see that will impact your lifespan, one is uh, BMI, you know, how much and, and how much weight are you carrying above your muscle mass at certain ages is super important. And then what are the complications in relationship to that? You know, BMI, diabetes, kidney disease, cardiovascular disease, and then historically looking at how that's impacted your family. Um, those things really matter. But I'll tell you a step further are things like community, right? Understanding what the community is like. Are they living near relatives? Uh, you know, we have a strong belief that, you know, one of the things that, that we ask frequently, I, I'll tell you what, to all your listeners on this podcast, if you want to give someone a gift who's over age 75, you can give them significant extension in lifespan by doing one thing, have it, sending them a subscription. And I'm not going to tell which firm you should do it with. Send them a subscription to learn a second language. There's a couple of companies out there that have them. Why? Think about what that does. One, it activates their neurological, right? Two, what else does it do? Build communication. Three, what else? Community. Four, travel, movement, right? Engagement. And fourth, purpose. I think that the mental aspects and neurological aspects of who we are are going to really matter on a go-forward basis. 
what when I speak at conferences, I, I you know I share some of the facts, some of the facts that, that that you and I just spoke about, you know, in relationship that you know over six foot and those things, and they're fun, and people kind of like, well, okay. But what I really tell them is, is that I'm going to give you the greatest gift. The greatest gift I can give you is the last ten years of your life back. Right, that's the data that we look at, and ultimately we feel pretty confident when you get past age ninety, things start to deteriorate. No matter how old you are, you just saw the former first lady uh, uh, from uh, Jimmy Carter just just pass away. Right. And how old was she? In her nineties, right? Ninety. I think she was ninety six. Right. right. She didn't live to one hundred. And Charlie Which, Munger. Charlie, Charlie Munger, Munger ninety nine didn't get didn't to make it. it. He didn't make it. Like it's, it's such a fallacy to say you are right. You're talking about someone who had the best healthcare ever, right? She had attendance, she had people watching after her and she had community. And so I think when you really start to think about these things now is how do I adopt this into as an RIA or financial advisor or anyone in, in, into my practice, life insurance is such a, key component to finding liquidity. So to increase assets under management, to find liquidity for your clients who weren't actually realizing that had liquidity. And now you apply that to other financial assets and, and, and adding kind of a customized solution. I think we're going to see a huge impact on um, the financial planning practice over the next five years because of this. What, what's one example like that how financial planning may change if you just had to pick the, the biggest change you're predicting to see? Yeah, one, I first and foremost, and this is a little self-serving, but people are going to start treating life insurance like an asset. Okay. They really are. Like we talked about at the beginning. Just, just like yeah. we spoke about. When that happens, let's just think about that. $233 billion lapsed over the age of 65. Let's just break down some of those numbers. If you just take the folks that are over age 80 that may have had a policy there that, that could have been sold at a higher market market value, you're still talking you know, to the tune of actual cash payouts 40, $50 billion, right? How much was allocated to target date funds last month, right? Like just think about the scale of that number. How many times have advisors heard, I can show you how to increase your AUM when I'm sitting there saying, you've got a seven X in your book and you're ignoring it. That is a massive shift that could increase the amount of AUM that financial advisors are able to capitalize liquidity into other assets. That's such a huge shift because then where does that go? right? That goes into other funds that goes into other type of liquid options. I mean, you can see how this, how one funds the other. And then the second piece to that is, I think that we're going to have to have customized financial solutions based on someone's lifespan. And I think that's going to have a monster impact on how we do things like estate planning, how we set up systematic withdrawal plans, right? The entire impact of that conversation. And if you as an advisor are not in front of that, your competition will be. How do I know how long I'm going to live? If I, if you're, I'm, you're, it's, it's interesting. You're probably pretty good. I, I mean, I can tell you, um, you know, we can, we can go through it. I, I like to joke and say, I'm a lot of fun at the holiday party. I'm like the carny yeah. in the corner and you know, everyone's like, Hey, what do I got? And I'm like, look, to be honest, like drink up because do you have, you, you're not going to go long. So have a great time. <laughs> I really enjoy think, you know, someone like me at round number, you know, 39, 40 here that, yeah. It's like, okay, is it 70, is it 80, is it 90, right? Because those are all still so far away, but sure. those are massively different. Yeah, I, I think the way I would think about it is that when we look at population today in that in that segment, 35 to 55, and you remove things like excess mortalities that happened during COVID, et cetera, and you just look at that time frame, I think that your next goal is what am I going to do to 65? Because 
part of that statistic, when you look at the general population and you see males average lifespan to age 78, might be a little, I think 77 and a half now, that's also includes mortality uh, rates related to infants. It includes mortality rates. Left, Wait, that's, that's starting suicide. at zero. So once right. you've made it to 40, you're, you're already going to be You're already there. Right. Yeah. So now you're looking in your 80s for sure. Right. And, and also take a quick look at your family history, right? Understand that the things you do when you're 40 or 50, you can have a major impact when you're 80. I would tell you there's a really high probability and you, and you have to discount accidents and other things that happen. Right. But you really have, if those are out of the equation, you have a really high probability of living to 80. You also have a really high probability of living to age 90, right? What is your 80s going to look like for you? That's the question you have to ask yourself. We see some really great living people in their 80s, and we see some people who are really strong. Right. One of the first times, I think, in our country's, I say history, is that where we saw an increase in lifespan for those over the age of 65, but a decrease in health span. Meaning that, yeah, you're going to live to 88, 89, but at age 82, things start going really badly for you. And that's not a life. Right. It's not the dignity that people want in their 80s. And so we start to have conversations with people, generally not 39, 40 or even 55 years old, because currently we're, we're very focused on what that looks like uh, for their life insurance policy. So we're typically working with seniors 65 plus. Right. But the same principles apply. Right. And it's that mindset of how do you want this to look? We know that having a sound financial plan can relieve a lot of stress when you're 80. What was the impact of COVID? Sure. It, it, interesting. In our demographic, you would think that it would have been significant. But remember, the people we're underwriting, and if you're 75 plus, you know, what we saw in COVID was that many of these individuals already had significant impairments. And COVID maybe accelerated those a little bit. Right. You know, I can give you a classic example, and I use this often, and, and I'm not a COVID conspiracy theorist. I'm not any of that. I'm just telling you the facts. We had underwritten an individual who had been di diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. That was two years prior to COVID. He passes away during COVID. The death certificate came back, and what did it say? It could have said either pancreatic cancer or it could have said COVID. It absolutely said COVID, Yeah. <laughs> right? We know he passed away of pancreatic cancer. I see. Like he was going to pass away at that time anyway, if COVID had never existed. Right. Right. But then when you look at the, the reporting on that for a number of reasons, it, you know, one, I, it's a whole nother issue that I have and just how we report cause of death right. um, in, in our country. Generally it's just primary. We don't report all the other things that are potentially involved here. And that ultimately hurts government agencies. Like we did a call with the NIH six months ago, and the NIH was asking us for data related to what they call co-impairments. Um, and we saw things in COVID that started to happen at the very end of 2019. For example, you know, we were tracking 73 to 75 year old and, and, and we have one of the largest life tracking and mortality tracking databases. We work, we can work with state and pension funds and insurance companies help them identify when these occur. But we're also tracking comorbidities along the way or what we call co-impairments. Like and the so, other things that you have in your body that that might affect you. 
Yeah. So we started to see, it was really fascinating. We started to see that those that had a BMI over 30 with kidney disease and diabetes, we saw this excess mortality start to happen on the age of 74, like in November, December of 2019. And it was a leap off the page. I'm like, man, that's weird flow. The the flow is really bad. Before March of 2020, before the shutdowns. Yes. And we were like, the flu is really bad. Right. Like, like, what's going on? This is some sort of, but it was at the time you're like, I, I, you know, interesting, let's keep an eye on it. And then of course you saw it really take off in March. So, you know, I think the conversations with the NIH and others are using these type of co-impairment strategies to help predict what the next pandemic might look like um, and who that might impact. Is it, is it crazy? Cause I've, I've had conversations with people, you know, they don't say it on camera. They say it privately. They say, look, maybe there should never have been a shutdown and all the inflationary spending afterwards. Everybody got COVID anyway. Mm-hmm. Everyone who was going to die of COVID died anyway, like you right. said, was, was, uh, and we're facing it now because now we're dealing right. with this massive stimulus that we're trying to deal with because yeah. we had all the shutdowns and COVID. Like, are we now still four years later paying for something that we could have simply not done? Because like you said, that was a person with pancreatic cancer. That person was right. going to pass away regardless. And we didn't need to shut down sure. half the economy. Sure. I mean, I think, in, you know, all of us could say that about different markets and things that have happened over the last hundred years, right? Like in, in, in retrospect, everything you said, I, I absolutely agree with. Um, in the time, I think there was so much unknown. We weren't sure about some of those right. things. Like I had some statistical data, but it wasn't enough to support saying, hey, let's not do this. And, and I think that's where people stood. Now, um, again, I'm not on either side of that argument. I'm just about facts. And, but it's like and you have better data. It's like you yes, have better data than anyone else does. That's correct. We had very accurate data. I will tell you as a business, we were, we were based in Florida and we never shut down. Partly right. because we were sending checks to seniors and we were processing mortality claims. We were tracking medical data and that was useful uh, to the state. But in addition to that, yeah, we, we had really good data to support what, where we were as a business and a company. I think, you know, the biggest thing that I, that I hope everyone takes away from what happened with COVID is that we didn't apply any type of real, um, I think, thought process in the decision process of people based upon um, having COVID, whether you had the vaccine or not, right? So, you know, being able to be, how long did uh, immune characteristics take place post-COVID if you had had it without it? And I think that made a big, I think that was a poor part of the decision process. Because, you know, for the same reason, if you catch the flu during the flu season, you don't go get a flu shot after that, right? Like, it's like too late. It's over. Yeah. Yeah. We take that into consideration everywhere else, everywhere else. But in that decision process, we weren't, I, I think, you know, they weren't doing that. And I think, you know, there's a lot of mindset around that. I, I don't want to go down that road, but I think that'd that would be, that'd be a different mistake. episode. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I have the data and, and so we can. We can, you know, we, we, we look at people who um, survive COVID, who, uh, you know, in that same target group who are healthier, right? Uh, if I were to give advice to anyone today is if you have a hard lesson from that, it's exercise, it's eat better, right? It's take care of your bodies. And, and because when you get to age 75, I don't care if it's COVID or anything else, you are frankly more vulnerable. And the things you do in your 39 and 40 or 50 or 55 have a massive impact. It's all the same advice, isn't it? Right. It's like yeah. sleep, eat better, exercise. Okay. Yeah. It's like, cures everything apparently. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I don't know. It cures everything, but it still gives you a better shot. Yeah. Then, then the last thing, you know, interest rates higher right now. What does that do? Obviously, we know 
these insurance products are very sensitive to interest rates, especially you know on the yeah. company side. What impact? What effects are you seeing right now in terms of how? people are behaving and then how you're trying to manage that investment portfolio. Sure. So we'll, we'll start with how people are behaving. It's given us a pretty unique opportunity in this environment, frankly, uh, for as people are seeking liquidity from their assets, uh, they're much more open to learning that, oh, I had no idea my life insurance had this value. Maybe I should pursue that. And so as a business and company, I, I'm not telling you anything that, that is not public. You look at our third quarter earnings results. You know, we're up 20% top line and 26% adjusted EBITDA, right? So, you know, this is the type of, of year where, um, you know, we're going to see more inquiries than we ever had before, right? When we look at our uh, advertising, we've seen we're from 10 to 12,000 inquiries per month from people seeking advice and information about this. So I think that's a key indication to what people are looking for from an economy, right? They're, they're in this interest rate environment. Yeah, they might be earning more in money market, but things are costing them more. And they're, they're, they're looking at other options and being open to other options for liquidity. Fred, now shifting to an investor point of view. An investor point of view, as you see cost of capital increase, right? That can actually impact what the net present value is of that contract, ultimately back to the policyholder, right? So the discount rates we were using three years ago in a near zero interest rate environment, we're obviously much lower in that factored calculation, meaning the payouts were higher to the policyholder then than they would be today where you've got interest rates near all time highs, right? So um, there's some impact there where we sit as a company, as the market maker and the origination company, you know, that's all based on new origination. So we, we adjust to that very, very quickly. I think overall though, as an investment asset class, Let's just look at it from a pure investor point of view. This is an essentially uncorrelated asset driven by, you know, mortality experience. So it's much like a mortality driven zero coupon where my counterparty is the insurance company themselves, which is a rated or better. You have double digit level returns on a contract that's in cash reserved at the counterparty. If you didn't know this was insurance, you would back the truck up. You would say, how do I get as much of this as I can? And I think so now from an economy point of view, we're really, really interesting asset class. So as a public company, as an investment, people are literally, you know, reaching out frequently. We're coming out with investment products for RIAs. We have a 40 act interval fund that's in process, that's public, which will be daily vow, give people access to this asset because that's why we went public to give people access inform them from an investment point of view, because historically, this asset has been reserved for the largest private asset managers in the world. And now we're making it available to every investor. And I think that's an important piece to where this is. It's it's a very interesting sliver or piece in someone's investment. And then you know, just the one final, final takeaway then for someone just watching this, if they remember one thing, is it simply if I if I'm understanding right, is it just don't let these policies lapse. They always have some kind of value. They almost always have some kind of value. Yeah. Talk to somebody and get that yeah. value. Don't just let it lapse. If That's I right. remember one thing, yeah. is that right? It is. It is. You can go even to our website. We have a free calculator. It costs you nothing. No one's going to call you right away. Like it's one of those things that you put in a couple pieces of your contact, and then, and then you don't have to worry about getting some email and say, then we'll give you the numbers. We give you the numbers right then. Oh, yeah. People hate that. People yeah. hate that. Yeah. Hate it. I hate it. That's why I didn't do it. Now, I got crucified, by the way, by marketing for that. They're like, you can't just give the data away. And I'm like, trust me, it'll all work out. <laughs> it's fine. Give people the information, gender, 
They just got to put in their, their gender size of policy, a couple of quick inputs, what they think their health is. And, and then literally instantly they get, hey, this is what your policy might be worth from a net present value. Um, and then from there, they can schedule an appointment. But whether because you know, a lot of people don't want to maybe they're uncomfortable and they say they don't want to reach out. They want to talk to somebody. They just want to get a kind of an instant idea. And we do that now online. So it, it's really easy for people to do. AbacusLife.com, they can do it. AbacusLife.com. And then, yeah, so then to tell me, where where are you right now? I know you're in a hotel. What are you, what are you doing? How are you joining oh, us from the road today? That's, that's a great question. Um, I was afraid you might ask that. It was kind of fun. They So we are, again, heavily regulated. So I am, oddly enough, in Las Vegas at a conference related to insurance regulation and um regulatory, uh, even from the political front. So, you know, we meet with governors of, of every party and talk to them about getting this message out, right? Because it has an impact on things like Medicaid, right? You take somebody who's going to potentially have to liquidate all their assets to qualify for Medicaid to get into a long-term care facility because the burden is too much on their family, the cost at 10 to 15,000 a month, the life insurance policy gets ignored. And we're sitting here saying there's hundreds oh, right. of thousands Actually, as of taxpayers there. as taxpayers. We want them to get the money from their life insurance because uh, we have to pay for their Medicaid anyway. So they Correct. might as well get everything they've got. Don't let it lapse. Everything. Don't let this lapse. Like, it's just a big insurance a company win. that keeps money. That's right. And yeah. and and frankly, I, I want to say this to the insurance companies. They're really not the bad guy here in a sense. I mean, they're there to run a profitable business. Right. I'll also add that even the insurance companies are now some of our biggest clients. We help them optimize some of that kind of legacy, what they call, you know, policies that were put out. And the insurance company might actually buy that back through us. And we obviously let the client know that. And in that scenario, that's a really a huge win. Right. Because now the insurance companies remove this off their books. There's no mortality experience that someone's then waiting to occur. And the ultimate policyholder got today's net present value, which is what they really want. And the policy is off the books. So, you know, there's there's lots of strategies here. But when you think about us as an institutional investor or an investor into whether it's public co or whether it's into these other assets, it's really exciting. Right. And we're truly just scratching the surface here. And it's all education based. Amazing, Jay. Thank you so much. This has been fantastic. Jay Jackson yeah. from Ambicus. Ambicus Life. The calculator is there. The The information is there. I, I really hadn't thought about this myself before about letting these policies void. So I'm glad, you know, people who are listening and watching and thinking about all that. And then as it relates to everything else that you're doing, as it relates to your, your stock portfolio, your bond portfolio, right. your target dated fund, what are you doing in retirement? So Jay, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show today. Likewise, thank you. And and for people watching, listening, we heard all these things, mistakes you can make with your finances. If you're not sure what you're doing with your finances and you don't have a financial advisor like Jay's talking about, you can go to wealthyon.com. We've got a short form too. You can put in your email, just like the Abacus Life short form and a couple of basic things. So if you're looking to talk to somebody, we've got some investment professionals that we endorse. And again, it's free. There's no commitment. There's no obligation. You can have conversations if you're trying to figure out questions like this. We've got those professionals that we endorse at wealthion.com. And if you like this episode as much as I did, please like it, share it, subscribe, forward it, tell your friends, all of those things help get the word out there. So the algorithms keep popping it up for more and more people to listen and to watch. So thank you again for watching this episode of Jay Jackson and I. Thanks for watching Wealthion. I'm Eric Chemi. We'll see you next time.